Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Today, we're joined by Dr. Peter Daly, a leading researcher in the fight against COVID-19. Dr. Daly and his team are running the CanTreat COVID study here in the province and looking at treatments for long COVID in various populations. Through an adaptive platform trial, he's assessing its effectiveness against the current variant and the role of novel medications in preventing this challenging condition. Today, we'll walk through what makes an effective and safe research project. Dr. Daly will share more about his research in COVID-19 and the rigor required to design clinical trials. He'll also explain the role of research ethics committees in ensuring patient safety. Now, currently, the CanTreat COVID study is recruiting patients to participate if they test positive for COVID-19. Today, we'll walk through who can participate and how you can get access to the study and help improve our health care for COVID-19 here in the province. So join us as we delve into the world of medical research and the CanTreat COVID study. We'll learn about the value of collaborative scientific endeavors with Dr. Daly as he guides us and sheds light on the intersection between science, compassion, and progress in medicine. Let's get to the interview. Hi, Dr. Daly. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Mike. Well, thanks for joining us today. This is an important topic. You have some exciting research going on. But before we get into that, maybe you could tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, my name is Peter Daly. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Memorial University, and my specialty of medicine is infectious disease. So when it comes to your research, you're looking at infectious disease, but you're specifically looking at COVID. Before we get into the research itself, maybe you could give a a basic overview of COVID-19 and and what it really does to the human body. Mm. COVID-19 is caused by a coronavirus, uh, which is a cough and cold virus. And really a group of viruses that's been with us as humans for a long time. But what happened in 2020 was that there emerged a new coronavirus that we had never seen before. And that means that we were not immunologically prepared to fight against this virus. And so we had an explosion of serious respiratory illness and death. And it was uh, considered a pandemic. Pandemic is an uh, an epidemic that affects the entire world. And uh, we all know what happened during COVID-19. There was a flurry of research. There was new vaccine development. There was new treatment development. But the world shut down. So it was a notable historic event. And now COVID-19 virulence has returned to a lower level, typical of other coronaviruses. That is, we still have plenty of infection. But it is a very mild kind of a cough and cold, miss a day of work kind of virus, not a kind of virus that kills people any longer. Mm. When we look at the stats around it now, what percentage of people do you think have actually had COVID-19 over the last number of years? It's probably every human being in the planet, to be honest, because between asymptomatic seroconversion, that is an infection that you're not aware that you have unless you do an antibody test, to the mild illnesses, to the life-threatening illnesses, and even to the recurrent infections. So we know that many people have had COVID-19 multiple times. We don't do antibody testing in everyone. And if you've had a vaccine, your antibody is positive anyway. So we don't really know how many people have had COVID-19, but the estimation is that the majority of the world has been through this infection. Yeah. And one of the things that sort of come from it that's different than your typical cold is long COVID or post-COVID condition. Can you explain what that means and what some of its symptoms are? 
Yes. So after the worst of the first wave, the early COVID-19 infections that were highly virulent and dangerous, a lot of people that were very sick, I'm talking about people who were on a ventilator in an intensive care unit, survived, but continued to suffer various symptoms about a month or three months after the COVID was over. And we've come to coin this term as long COVID or the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19. And we don't really know what that is, but it is something to do with continuing to feel unwell after surviving serious COVID-19. And it's interesting that we've looked at the incidence of long COVID compared to the incidence of symptoms after other life-threatening illnesses, and it is similar. That is to say, there's probably nothing special about COVID, but rather when anyone suffers a serious life-threatening illness, they will be left with residual symptoms, even permanently, to do with fatigue or trouble breathing or confusion or cough or various general symptoms that are really the residual effects of a serious life-threatening illness. Hmm. Yeah. Was that something that they expected when the pandemic began, that there would be these long-lasting things and, and you know how has our understanding of COVID-19 changed as we've had more data and more time to look at the effects of it? No, I don't think this post-COVID condition or long COVID was anticipated. And in fact, because COVID was very common and a lot of people had very serious illnesses in the initial part of the pandemic, the prevalence of this condition is high. That is, a lot of people are struggling with these post-COVID symptoms. Unfortunately, we don't really have a definition for long COVID. Nobody really agrees on what we can say, this patient has long COVID, this patient doesn't have long COVID. And a lot of the studies that have been published in long COVID are observational and uncontrolled. So we don't have good high quality evidence for long COVID, for prevention of long COVID, for treatment of long COVID. And we don't really know what to do with this kind of a long lasting symptom. Certainly, the virus has been and gone, so there's no sense giving an antiviral treatment to a person who has persistent symptoms after a virus. And we don't really have specific therapy that we know of, although there's a lot of research going on. So yeah, it's a bit of an um, unexpected or unfortunate consequence for those that are seriously ill with COVID-19. The two pieces of good news, one is that long COVID tends to get better on its own, so that people do resolve over time. And if you look at them six months out and 12 months out, they are better than they were. And the other good thing is that the more recent waves of COVID-19, such as the Omicron wave, have not been associated with severe persistent symptoms. That is, once the virus became less virulent, it became a, a minor infectious disease of humans, then we really stopped seeing these severe persistent symptoms. And so the prognosis looks good on those two counts. Yeah, it's interesting. And I wonder, is the likelihood of long COVID similar to the likelihood of severe COVID in a way that there's a certain populations that are more vulnerable than others when it comes to susceptibility to long COVID? I don't think we know that. That is who would we predict would develop long COVID. We have a very good prediction for risk of severe COVID, older age, comorbidities, immunosuppression. Those are the people that suffered or died more with COVID-19. I don't think we really know who will develop long COVID. We could probably predict it based on the severity of the COVID illness. So if you were 
admitted to an intensive care unit or put on a ventilator machine to help you survive, that would be considered very severe COVID-19 disease. Those would be the patients who would be at risk of long COVID. The patients with the mild viral infection would be less likely to suffer long COVID. One unique feature about long COVID that we know of that seems to be particular to this virus is the loss of smell and loss of taste that a lot of patients complain of. That seems to be not simply a consequence of a life-threatening inflammatory condition, but rather something specific to this virus only. So we do have patients who continue to complain of loss of taste and loss of smell four months after illness. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've known some people that did go through that when they had COVID. And a couple of people I actually know with long COVID as well that really struggled as a result of it. Now, you mentioned the variants like Omicron, for example. Do you think we'll see less and less long COVID as COVID-19 becomes a little bit less severe, especially with the fall approaching? In fact, I think we're already seeing reduction in long COVID as a consequence of serious illness mostly because most COVID at this point is not serious illness. It's a minor uh, upper respiratory tract infection, which doesn't really lead to hospitalization or death. COVID-19 is no longer considered a pandemic. It's considered like an endemic now. So what's the difference between that for people that are listening? Pandemic is an unstable situation. That is to say the virus is spreading rapidly across the entire world and it's changing itself quickly. The word endemic means a stable situation. Endemic means a predictable annual winter-related increase like we see with other respiratory viruses, influenza, RSV, enterovirus, rhinovirus. So COVID has moved from an unstable situation to a more stable situation, and we're still seeing plenty of COVID. It is low in the summer, probably because we spend more time outdoors rather than indoors. And it comes up in the wintertime. So we do expect December, January, February to have a increase of COVID. And there may be more serious infections among the more immunocompromised and elderly population. So we expect a predictable seasonal surge, which is to say an endemic or stable uh, epidemiology. One of the things that's come out of this, obviously, has been a wealth of research. People have now had a chance to get research projects in place, and you guys are currently working on a project. Can you give us an overview of the CanTreat COVID study and what your main objectives are going to be? Thank you. Uh, we are participating in a national randomized controlled trial of treatment for COVID-19. And uh, this is a project funded by the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. And what we're looking for is people who are willing to participate, people that have COVID-19, and people that are generally healthy, that is people in the community. We did a lot of research during the height of the pandemic inside the hospitals. So we were randomizing patients to various innovative treatments when they were critically ill. Now we have an interest to continue to study new treatments in the ambulatory healthy population. Now, what is a randomized controlled trial? Uh, unfortunately, during COVID-19, we saw a lot of research that was done without a proper design. Uh, that is, a lot of people, including many doctors, promoted various new treatments which were not based on strong evidence of benefit and safety. We do that type of research using a randomized controlled trial. This is a design in which the study will decide if the patient receives treatment A or treatment B. 
then the patient will receive that treatment and be followed forward over time to determine what the outcome is, whether the drug helps the patient or whether the drug harms the patient. So randomized controlled trials are an important part of health research. We are a university hospital and we do a lot of randomized controlled trials here in St. John's, Newfoundland. So we are interested in continuing to study new drugs. The drug of interest in the trial at this time is called Paxlovid. That's the trade name. The generic name is Nermatrovir or Ritonavir. It's an antiviral and it works against COVID. At least it worked during the early waves. At this point, we don't know if it still works against the current variant, which is the Omicron variant. And furthermore, we don't know if it protects or prevents against long COVID. So the purpose of our current research is to give patients this drug if they consent to participate in a research study and compare the patients who received the drug to those who did not receive the drug and determine if the drug is still effective at this point in the epidemic. Uh, so that's what we're looking for. We are seeking patients who are testing themselves so most of us in the province have an antigen kit in their home. And once they have a sniffle or a cough, they do a nose swab and they come to their own diagnosis. And once they have that diagnosis, we'd like them to contact our study and we'd like to enroll them in the study. We will be paying patients for participation as part of their time. So we're interested in recruiting going forward. The study will be lasting for many years of time. So we're just really launching it now in the province. Mm -hmm. Well, that's important. I mean, especially because long COVID, like you said, has got these symptoms that can persist for quite a long period of time. From a medical perspective, as a physician, why is it important that we do prevent this long COVID in patients that are potentially susceptible to it? Preventing long COVID is about protecting people's independence and productivity. So if you suffer a viral infection and you're left with a persistent fatigue or breathlessness or chest pain or cough, and you're unable to continue to work, then that is a loss of productivity to the society. So we want to keep people healthy. That's our job. If they do go through a viral infection, we'd like to think that they would return to their normal state of health, not be bothered by persistent symptoms, which would restrict their activity or cause disability to them. So that's really the objective. And we expect that long COVID is actually fairly uncommon at this point because the current variant is relatively mild, but it's important that we study that in a randomized controlled trial. Yeah. I think about like an example, I had mononucleosis when I was in university. I got a little later than most. I was tired for a long period of time afterwards. It really affected me. And so I could see how having a severe viral infection could lead to this feeling of fatigue or these other symptoms. I'm an epidemiologist, so I, I kind of really enjoy hearing about the randomized control trial. You have an emphasis on being what's called an adaptive platform trial. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, this is an exciting development is that traditionally we established a randomized controlled trial, answered a question and closed the trial. Nowadays, we're thinking differently. We're thinking about open a trial for a particular condition, answer the first question and immediately move into answering the second question and the third question and the fourth question. So in our adaptive platform trial, we'll be looking at patients with COVID-19. We have the current medicine Paxlovid. We're going to assess that Paxlovid is helpful or not helpful. Then we're going to move to the next medicine and we're going to assess something else that's new. 
then we're going to move to the next medicine. In other words, we don't close the trial. We continue to recruit the patients to answer additional questions. Furthermore, an adaptive platform design only recruits enough patients to answer the question. That is, there's no wastage of unnecessary effort. Once we've achieved the statistical outcome that we're looking for, we close the question and move to the next question. And so there are a number of adaptive platform trials ongoing right now. Well, that's good. And you mentioned it's a research hospital. And when it comes to these drugs, these are going to be available in community settings. Why is it important that researchers like yourself that are working with the community are researching these types of medications? Yes, it's very important that we develop scientific evidence, not only in serious illnesses, such as patients in hospital or intensive care units, but also in more mild illnesses, especially when mild illnesses are very common. So coughs and colds are extremely common. Most of us have a cough or a cold once a year or more. So it's very valuable that we develop evidence in these types of medical conditions equally as much effort as we would put in hospitalized patients. And we have ways that we can engage patients in research without making them come to the hospital. So we can speak to the patient on the phone. We can speak to them on a video conference. We can deliver a medication by post to their home address. We can follow them over time and assess their outcome without actually examining them in person. So this allows us to expand our research considerably because we can recruit a patient from a remote location in a rural area. We can recruit a patient who may have difficulty coming to see us in the city. We can talk to more patients than we would have time to talk to if we had to see them in person. So it really is an improvement in the way that we do research in the province. And there's been a movement to activate more research in the other health regions, the Central Health Region, Western Region, Lab Grenfell Region, not only focusing on the city, but especially since the province is now a single health region, we need to provide access to research to our patients in rural areas as well as in urban areas. That's also more indicative of our population. We have a huge rural population here in the province. And when I look at this and I hear you speaking about this and knowing about research and how much it costs, and, and this is an extensive study that you're trying to go all the way across our province. How does the Canadian Institute for Health Research, Health Canada, and the Public Health Agency support what you guys are doing? In fact, COVID-19 created an explosion in priority in randomized trials in this country. What, what happened was we looked at what the UK was able to do quickly during the pandemic. And the UK showed us that we can do a randomized controlled trial integrated inside of routine patient care. We can activate a trial quickly. We can recruit hundreds of patients into the trial, and we can answer important questions urgently when there's a threat to health. And Canada said, we can't actually do that. We don't have a rapid, centralized, well-funded clinical trial infrastructure in this country. And so the reaction of the Liberal government was to fund this type of research significantly. And so now, after the pandemic, we have tremendous resources towards clinical trials. We can access millions of dollars of government money to allow us to do this type of research. So it really is an exciting moment. We have tremendous capability 
that we didn't have prior to the pandemic. Yeah, and I think about that as well. Obviously, there's been a lot of research when it comes to vaccination. How does this impact individuals that have been vaccinated? Will all people be able to participate in this? Do we expect that it's going to be a different treatment based on people who are vaccinated versus not? We know that COVID-19 vaccination was tremendously beneficial. It is a safe vaccine and it is an effective vaccine. We had a high rate of vaccine uptake in the province. Most of us have accepted vaccine. Some of us have not. This trial will include vaccinated patients. That is, the majority of Newfoundland will be vaccinated. There is no difference in this trial between vaccinated or unvaccinated people. Of course, people who are vaccinated are less likely to get COVID-19. So then that does reduce our access to people with COVID-19 because the vaccine is effective. But there is no restriction or eligibility that has to do with vaccine. Everyone is welcome to the trial provided they have COVID-19. For people that are listening that may test positive and be a potential participant in this study, let's talk through a little bit about who can be involved. So what is your ideal candidate for this study and what sort of criteria would they need to fit in order to enroll? This study has very simple eligibility. If you have a positive a nasal antigen test that you take at, at your own home and you do yourself and it's positive, and you're within five days of onset of symptoms, we want to hear from you. We're interested in 50-year-olds and older, but if you're younger, 18 to 49 years of age, and you have a chronic medical problem, then you're eligible. So the study does focus on the 50 years old and older population, but we are also willing to look at younger people provided they have at least one chronic medical condition. The way the study will work, you have a symptom, you do a test, it's positive, you contact us. We will assess your eligibility, we will talk to you by telephone, and then the study will randomize you. That is the study determines which treatment you will receive. I don't determine which treatment you receive. You don't determine which treatment you receive. The study performs a randomization. That is like a roll of the dice to determine that every group has an equal opportunity to the same types of treatments. And then we will deliver that treatment to you. The treatment is free of charge. It is posted to your home address. We have to move quickly because you have to take the medication within five days of onset of symptoms. So for instance, if you have a symptom over a weekend and you don't let us know, then we might miss you because we only have five days to get the drug to you. Of course, it's a 50-50 randomization between the drug and not drug. That is a standard of care. Standard of care is what we call supportive care or no Paxlovid. You can take over-the-counter types of treatments, of course, as treatment from your pharmacist for cough and cold. Then we will follow you over time and we will follow you for a good period of time. We go out to 36 weeks to determine your outcome. And we will be asking you about your symptoms and we'll be asking you about long COVID. And we will be asking you if you needed to come to hospital for any reason. And our study nurses will be paying attention to you by telephone over that time. So the benefit of participation is that you get some extra medical care in that you have a regular telephone connection with a study nurse who's asking you about your health. And during the period of the study, that's one advantage for our participants. Oh, that's great. And that's really helpful for a lot of people, particularly those in rural settings that may not have access as easily as those in more urban settings. The, the other thing I wonder about, 
were we selected as a province particularly to participate in this or is this a completely national study? The study was national and the study sought every province to participate. Unfortunately, not every province chose to participate, but we put our hand up and said, yes, please run the study in our province as well. So it is in multiple provinces, uh, Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia, and there's a few other provinces. It's not every single province, but those provinces that volunteered were included. Wow. And what are, what are your estimates for total number of subjects? The more subjects that we enroll, the quicker we're going to answer the scientific questions that we're posing. This study has a large scale. 10,000 participants is the intention. We hope that we'll get that many people nationally, and we will be running the study on an ongoing basis. Really, it's all about communication. We have to let people become aware that we have this research opportunity, that we are paying you to participate per telephone visit, and we want people to become aware of this. Otherwise, we won't be successful at recruiting into our study. So part of our intention is to promote this through radio and social media and letting physicians know, letting pharmacists know that we are looking for patients now. It's true. And that's why it's such a great opportunity for us to have a chat today. This is one of the things that we focus on is things that are happening that are relevant in the community that we can get the word out on. And I think another trusted source for people would be the physician. So if a physician is listening, how do they get information that they can share with their patients? The Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association will be promoting this to physicians through their newsletter. And uh, physicians can log on to the study website, which is Can Treat COVID. So you just search Can Treat COVID and you'll find us. When you've got your 10,000 patients, I could just imagine how much data is coming out of this. How do you guys actually sort through all of this information that's going to be coming in from 10,000 people? So we have a strong data management and analysis group. Again, very well-funded study based in Toronto, large capacity for this type of thing. All the data is directly entered into a website. The website is highly secure and confidential, of course, because it contains patient information. And we have a data safety monitoring board, which regularly performs analysis and would advise to continue the study or to stop the study according to the results that are collected. So a very strong capacity. We don't miss anybody's information. We don't make any errors in data entry or data analysis. And we, of course, protect confidentiality of that data as well. Mm. That's important. I think that's one of the things. Privacy, of course, extremely important to people. And I guess the other really important thing to ask is what measures are in place to ensure safety and well-being of people Anytime there's a treatment being given, you're dealing with people that have had a condition like COVID-19, there's obviously some health challenges. How do you ensure the safety for participants? So any research study in human beings is passed through a research ethics committee. And a research ethics committee contains expert people that to go through the whole study and determine that it is ethical to perform the research. That is, the risks and benefits to the patient are considered favorable. In other words, the researcher cannot abuse the patient or put a patient into research that is unethical. So it's critically important and we have a very excellent functioning research ethics committee in this province. It contains physicians, it contains lawyers, it contains patients, it contains research staff who work on research full time. 
We evaluate carefully that a study is considered ethical, and we do not perform a study which is considered unethical. Unfortunately, in this province, there is a history of unethical research at times, and patients have been taken advantage of or abused or subjected to unnecessary risk. So we have that protection in place, which really protects the patient. So we've covered a little bit about COVID-19, about your research, about what patients go through. Let's talk about what you hope to find out of this. When we're looking at the outcome measures, what are you hoping are the big results you see from this, or at least what's your hypothesis? So the first question that we're working on is this drug Paxlovid. <clears throat> My personal hypothesis is that Paxlovid may not be still helpful. It may have been helpful during the early pandemic. It may not be continuing to be helpful. Of course, if we find negative results, that is that the drug does not benefit the patient, then we should immediately stop giving the drug to anyone because it is not effective. In terms of safety, we have safety data on Paxlovid. We do not expect that Paxlovid will be harmful. Uh, furthermore, the study will move into some diagnostic hypotheses as well. We have new diagnostic tests. Besides diagnosing COVID-19 in your bathroom at home, you may also be able to diagnose other viral infections at the same time. So that would be quite helpful when it comes to influenza, because for influenza, we also have effective therapy that needs to be given urgently, uh, quickly uh, after the onset of the illness. So we may expand into multiple other respiratory viruses during the course of the study. Yeah, that's what you were talking about, the adaptive platform, being able to change things as you go along because you're changing the treatment, but essentially keeping the study the same. When you're looking at these future medications, how do you identify the effective ones that are being used? Are you looking at research or is this based on clinical guidelines? We look at preclinical research. That is, a company or a university may be working on a drug either a drug that's already used for other indications that may be helpful for COVID-19 or a brand new drug which has never been used before. And we have a committee that screens this literature continuously and we identify a new molecule that may be effective. And this is the process of new drug development. Some of it is driven by pharma companies for profit. Some of it is driven by universities, which is not necessarily for profit reasons, but there's a continuous pipeline of new drugs being created. And we want to access these drugs if they're safe and effective. We want to study them. And if they are favorable, then we want to make them available to Canadians and of course, people around the world. So we are pushing the innovation forward constantly to provide our province, our country, and our planet with the very best possible treatment for this type of disease. So we do this research right here. You're able to determine that these are effective. For example, how quickly do they get out into the public realm for people to be able to benefit from them? Well, this drug Paxlovid was a bit of a unique situation because even before we knew that Paxlovid was effective, the federal government had purchased the drug mm. and was distributing it for no cost to the provinces. Mm. That is a highly abnormal situation. The usual process is much longer. The company or the researcher does a clinical trial. The regulatory system has to go through the results and determine that a drug is approved or not approved. Only then would it be marketed. 
The company would come up with a price that they would charge for the drug, and then the drug would be sent out to pharmacies. People would pay for it themselves, or their insurance program would agree to pay for it. That is the slow, usual process for new drug access. And I think about how science has been able to accelerate in certain ways because the world's united in this common threat with COVID-19. How do you envision the post-COVID world when it comes to medical research and potential therapies? COVID was an exciting moment because everyone was thinking about the same problem. People in my field were thinking about it. People in other medical fields suddenly began to focus on it. And for a moment in time, we all thought about a common enemy. And that was exciting. And that led to tremendous innovation, the messenger RNA vaccine technology, uh, which wasn't new, but was really promoted for vaccination. And this new drug, Paxlovid, this is a totally novel drug, never been used for any other indication before. The pharma companies were motivated to churn out a brand new molecule and it worked. So what will happen after COVID? We will settle back to our homeostasis point. That is our usual situation in which each type of science works in their own field and we're no longer completely focused on COVID-19. But you know what has it led to? It's led to innovation. It's led to excitement. It's led to funding, which will benefit people who work in cancer and people who work in heart disease and people who work in diabetes and people who work in hypertension, many other types of medical problems are going to benefit from research engagement and funding to identify new treatments. It's a constantly forward thinking process. We must get better. We must get better. And that's the motivation. And I think COVID has benefited that. Yeah, I, I do agree that from the health and wellness side of things, it was a time when people were aware of the risk factors. They improved their health literacy because they knew where they were vulnerable and what the risk factors were for the first time. And I think that did help people be able to take steps to improve their health in a long way. So I think that, yeah, all aspects of health really saw a lot of changing. Now, there's a couple of things when it comes to the success of this study. First of all, you've talked about the benefit of having these large funding agencies to be able to provide you the resources to have this. But how important is public support in participating in this study to make it successful? No study has any results without patient participation. And it's very important that we have good relationships with our patients. We explain to them that we do research as part of routine patient care. We offer patients research. Of course, research is never forced on any patient. It is considered optional. They can refuse to participate. They can agree to participate. We go through an informed consent process. All of the risks and benefits of the study are provided to the patient and the patient signs an informed consent. The patient can also withdraw from research subsequently if they do not want to continue to consent for participation. But the idea that we're trying to promote, and we are trying to put posters on the wall in the hospital that says, you know, this is a research-focused institution. If you come to hospital here, we will give you world-class care. That is the most innovative, the best, the newest access to this type of science, and that is through research. So you can come to hospital and choose to participate in research and you'll access a more high, high level or innovative care. You can choose to not participate in research and you can receive standard care, which is also excellent care. So in this way, we really want to share with our patients the excitement that we have for innovation in medicine.
Yeah, that's true. And that's how things move forward. People participate and hopefully they benefit tremendously from it by avoiding something like long COVID. You know, we're starting to wind down here, but, uh, you know, as we sort of close up, is there any last words you want to leave our listeners with or, or ways they can get a hold of you if they're interested in participating? Yes, uh, we would like you to let us know as soon as you're COVID positive. So uh, first of all, uh, please keep testing yourself. Uh, at this point where the illness is mild, we tend to not bother with a test. We just say, oh, well, take a day off school or work because I've got a cough and a cold and we don't do a test. But if you do a test and remember the government has given you free tests, so everyone should have the green box of antigen tests in their bathroom somewhere. Perform the test, let us know. We'd like to have you as part of our research study. But important that we put research in the context of health improvement in our province. Uh, we have the health accord. We are seeing positive political change towards improvement in health. Uh, we'd like to see improvement in people's choices in terms of reducing cigarette smoking, reducing alcohol overuse, reducing the use of recreational drugs, which are harmful and can lead to death from overdose. So a lot of these positive changes we're trying to encourage in the health of the province. Yeah. And that's important stuff. And I think that the more that we're active as a community and the more we're informed about it, the better choices we can make. So I just wanted to thank you so much for coming here today and taking this hour to have a chat with us and explain more about your study. And I wish you all the best of luck as you start to recruit. Thanks so much. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Peter Daly, for joining us today. The insights he shared shed light on the innovative research underway to combat COVID-19 and prevent its long-term effects here in the province. Remember, the success of this study relies on community participation. So if you or someone you know tests positive for COVID-19 and meets the study's criteria, consider joining this vital research effort. Now to learn more about the study, you can visit their website at cantreatcovid.ca. Together, we can all contribute to a healthier future by advancing medical science and improving patient outcomes. Well, thanks for tuning into our episode today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your... VOCM.